Matthew 21, verses 28 to 46. Hear the word of the Lord. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Maybe you have heard this quotation of Mark Twain, uh, which he, by the way, apparently never said, but it's one of his famous quotations that he never said. And it goes like this. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. The things that trouble me are the things I can understand. You ever heard that quotation that he never said? Well, uh, when we started this series in the parables, we were dealing with parables that we had trouble understanding. And the things that troubled us about those parables is that we didn't get them. And Jesus said, exactly, that's why I use parables, so that people will not understand. And that was difficult to struggle through that. Why teach if you're using a form that's difficult to understand? But now you will notice that as we get to some of these latter parables, the problem is not that they're difficult to understand. The problem is that we understand them only too well. And you remember that in the first parables, Jesus didn't give an explanation. He told the parable, and then he walked off, and that was it. And they were left scratching their heads and wondering, what in the world does that mean? But you'll notice that now, he is explaining the parables. And the people for whom he told these parables were getting the message only too well. And they were very disturbed 
by them. We have two parables we're looking at today. Both take place in the vineyard. And this first parable follows, well, both of them follow. And by the way, there's another parable next week in the beginning of chapter 22 that follows on this. So there are three parables that go together here. But they follow a provocative series of events and encounters. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 21, that helps to see the nature of these parables because in the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus rode in as a king to Jerusalem at the busiest time of year during the Passover feast. And not only that, then he went in uh, after being proclaimed as a king and riding into Jerusalem as a king. He went in and cleaned house violently in the, in the, the market that was set up in the temple grounds. And then he healed the blind and the lame, which, by the way, was predicted that the Messiah would do that. Uh, There's no healing of the blind in all of the Old Testament because that would be something that only Messiah would do when he came. And so he healed the blind and the lame in the temple, and he received praise from children. And when they told him to tell the children to be quiet, he quoted Scripture saying, actually, it's children who will praise God. So placing himself in the place of one who would receive praise from God... And then there is the cursing of the unproductive fig tree. The fig tree was also a symbol of Israel. It was a fig tree that looked good, but it wasn't producing fruit. And then finally, the last thing he did before this first parable we saw today is he impaled the religious leaders on the horns of a dilemma, and he did so publicly, and he left them hanging there. He asked them some questions, and they couldn't answer it, and they dared not answer those questions, because if they answered this way, they were in trouble, and if they answered that way, they were in trouble. So there was a series of provocations in the face of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And in the, in the, the light of that, then he tells these parables. And he started and ended this parable of the two sons with questions. And you'll notice that he asked two questions in the first Parable, and he asked two questions in the second parable as well. If you look at verse 28, he says, what do you think? So he sets them up and says, I want to know what you think about what I'm about to say. And then in verse 31, he asks them the question, which of the two sons did the will of his father? And the parable is, is pretty simple. It's a shorter parable. And it's the father tells one son, go work in the vineyard today. And then he tells another son the same thing. And the first son says, I will not. So he just refuses his father, which is a shocking thing, the the disobedience to his father. But later he thought better of it, and then he went to go work. Well, the second son, he goes to the second son, tells him the same thing, and he says, aye, aye, sir, I will go. Yes, sir. But he didn't go. That's the parable. That's it. Very simple. Two sons. One says, no. And then he obeys. One says, yes, and then he disobeys. And then Jesus puts it on them. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered correctly. Verse 31, they said, the first. And now Jesus takes it to them, and he he applies the parable in a way that they cannot miss. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go in before you. Now, the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
were proverbial representatives of sinners. Uh, they, one was male, the other was female, largely anyway, and uh, they both had the characteristic of selling themselves in different ways for money. So men selling themselves out for money, women selling themselves in, in another way for money. And they, they were proverbial, and they covered men, they covered women. And they were, they were tended to be despised in Israel, uh, although, although these were Israelites that were doing this oftentimes, but they tended to be despised. And he says, they, the ones that you all, you the religious leaders, the ones that you despise, the ones that you look down on, the ones that you condemn, they will go into the kingdom before you. Now, this before you probably means instead of you. Now, it would be bad enough if they had to go in after the prostitutes and the tax collectors. That would be bad enough because they thought, well, we're the religious leaders. We're the holy people. We're the, we're the ones in charge here. We're going to go in first for sure. So it would be bad enough if they had to go after them. But it looks like the point is that, no, you're not going in at all. They're going in before you and then implicitly, and we'll see in the second parable, it's not implicit, it's explicit, you'll be left out. And he explains why in verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, even when you saw that, and like that first son, you had the opportunity after you said, no, I'm not going to believe John. After you said no, you had the opportunity afterwards to think about it and a chance to respond. But afterwards, verse 32 says, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe in him. This is interesting because Jesus is saying here that your response to John, your response to John determines whether you get in the kingdom or not. Now, normally, Jesus is saying, your response to me will decide whether you get in the kingdom or not. But now he's saying, your response to John the Baptist determines whether you will enter the kingdom or not. And the response of the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and anyone else, for that matter, to John. Now, why did John? What was John's message? John's message was Jesus. And so ultimately, it is about response to Jesus. But it's interesting here that he's saying that there was a messenger that preached about me. And so this is an, a, a fascinating application because it's saying the way we, we, we respond to faithful messengers of the gospel, those who are preaching repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the way we respond to preachers of the gospel, if they're preaching the message, it determines whether we enter the kingdom of God or not. And he says, they're getting in. You're not. That's the first parable. And the second one is, is similar in some ways. It's also in a vineyard. Do you remember the parable about the laborers? Some got hired early and others got hired throughout the day. They were going to go work in the vineyard. The two sons were going to go work in the vineyard. Here's another one. They were going uh, to work in a vineyard. But this time, it was a, an owner who was going away. But before he goes away, very much like Isaiah chapter 5, he does everything he can to set up the vineyard to be productive. Uh, in verse 33, 
There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and then he leased it out to tenants and he went into another country. So they're in charge. And then verse 34 indicates that it was going to be a profit-sharing sort of structure. When the time of the harvest came, they were to give to him his share of the profits, his share of the fruit, and apparently keep some for themselves. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Now, up to this point, the parable is very realistic. You can imagine this sort of thing happening. But then it begins to get outrageous, and it, it, it goes beyond what we might imagine in reality. It gets so outrageous. And the tenants, verse 35, took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. This is getting very outrageous. Their, their behavior is, is, is unbelievable type of behavior. And then it gets worse. There's a last resort that the owner of the vineyard uses, and that's sending his son, verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, and this was his reasoning, saying, they will respect my son. They haven't respected my servants or slaves, low-class uh, individuals in the society, but, but they will respect my son. He's my son. I, I'm the owner. And then it says that when the tenants saw the son, exactly the opposite happened in 38. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. This is not very realistic on their part, is it? That's why this is, this is becoming surreal, the kind of parable here. It's, it's unbelievable. How could they have the inheritance? That, that's, that's not a, a likely scenario, but this is their reasoning here. It's, it's, it's irrational. It, it, it's crazed. It is, it, is, uh, it is beside themselves doing things that are, that are impossible to, to, to proceed and to prosper. And then it says, when the son came, verse 39, they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus asks a question. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And then they answered. And once again, they gave an answer, a good answer, a correct answer. And the answer was, was an indignant answer. He said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. There's actually a, a repetition here. He will put those wretches to a wretched death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their season. They are indignant about this parable, that, that, that anyone could do something like that. Do you remember when David had sinned in the matter of Bathsheba, and then in the matter of her husband having him killed, and then he covered it up for a while, and then God sent the prophet Nathan who told a story about a rich man taking the one lamb of a poor man instead of using one of his own lambs, many lambs that he had as a rich man. And Nathan said, what, what should be done? And David was furious. He was, he was indignant that, that that rich man would take advantage uh, of his poor neighbor. And David blurted out, that man deserves to die. And you remember what Nathan said, you are the man. 
It's the same dynamic here. They, they blurted out, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus said, he asked a question, he made a statement, and then made, he made a further clarifying comment. The question, the first question is this, have you never read the scriptures? Have you never read the scriptures? And there he quotes Psalm 118, and in Psalm 118, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here it says that the builders of this building are rejecting the most important stone in the building, the stone that holds the whole building together, the, the one that holds the whole thing up, the the, the stone without which the building cannot stand. And it's not, it's not some who have no idea of construction. It's the builders. And that was what was predicted. And even so, it says this was the Lord's doing. That the stone would be rejected. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he takes it to them directly once again in verse 43. Therefore I tell you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You are the men, he's saying here. You just said that. And by saying that, you condemned yourselves. You just said that he will put those wretches to a wretched end and he will let out his vineyard to someone who will give him his fruit. And Jesus said, exactly. You nailed it. You got it right. And he will take the kingdom away from you and give it to a people producing his fruits. And then there's a further comment about this stone. Because this rejected stone is dangerous. It's dangerous. It becomes dangerous and deadly if you reject this stone. He said in the 1, verse 44, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So it's not only unwise to reject this stone, it is deadly to reject this stone. And then we have the reaction. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived <laughs> that he was speaking about them. They perceived it because he said so. This is about you. And then verse 46, how tragic. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, that is the crowds, held him to be a prophet. They perceived that it was about them. But instead of being horrified that they, the builders, might be tempted to reject the stone. In order, instead of being horrified that they might be the son who says, yes, sir, but doesn't obey. Instead of being being afraid of being those, those tenants that didn't bring the fruit at the proper time. What do they do? They take action to fulfill exactly what Jesus was saying was going to happen. They, 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 they confirm who they are. They, they seek to arrest him, rejecting the stone, not bringing the fruit, not obeying the Father's command. Now, this, 
These, I should say, two parables were directed against the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the, the ones who controlled the temple, managed the kingdom of God, as it were, from the temple. And although these parables folk focus on the unbelieving and unfruitful religious leaders of Jesus' day, they also include us. And we need to find ourselves in these parables. And if we were to find ourselves in the first parable and not find ourselves, this is what we need to be careful, we ought not to find ourselves with those who say, yes, sir, and don't obey. That's always a temptation for anyone who professes faith, isn't it? To, to, to confess with our mouths one thing and then act in our lives in another way. And if we don't want to find ourselves in, in the shoes of that son, then with whom do we need to identify ourselves? With the tax collectors and the prostitutes. If you don't want to be in the, in the shoes of the, of the ultimately disobedient son, you need to get yourself into the shoes of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And that may be uncomfortable. And you might say, I'm better than they are. My life hasn't been as bad as theirs. Or you might say, no, my life's been that bad. Or you might say, my life has been worse than theirs. And we all know. And it's interesting here that, that they're representative of men, representative of men, and representative of women. They're representative of, of financial crimes. They're representative of, of sexual sins. And I don't think there's anyone who can say, I have managed my financial affairs always with 100% integrity. I've never wasted money. I've never taken advantage of any. I've always paid every cent I owe in taxes. We could go on. And I doubt there's anyone who could say I'm clean in that regard or in sexual matters as well. How we have thought, how we have spoken, how we have looked, how we have acted. And so it may be that we're more like those tax collectors and sinners than we would like to admit, but however we stack up against them, they show us the way into the kingdom of God. And how is that? By believing the good news. John preached the good news about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I must decrease. Go follow him. He must increase. He's the one that's promised. He's the Messiah. That's the only way to get into the kingdom of God. You're not going to get in any other way. The only way to get into the kingdom of God is by believing the gospel. That's the way of the tax collector and sinner. That's the way of everyone. And that's the only place we can find ourselves in this parable if we want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, now reflect on this. The most amazing thing about this kingdom is that it is open to tax collectors and prostitutes and all the rest of us as well. That's the amazing thing about this kingdom. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of kindness. It's a kingdom of mercy. It's a kingdom of grace. And that's why they weren't getting it. They thought it was a kingdom of their obedience, but they weren't even obeying. And so they're doubly damned. They're wrong about how you get into the kingdom, and then even by their own standards, they couldn't get into the kingdom. And that's how it always is if we make the fundamental mistake of thinking that this is a kingdom into which we enter by our own performance. Because no matter where we set the standard for our performance, we will always fall short of that. And so we condemn ourselves. But that's not how the kingdom is. The kingdom is open to all who believe in Jesus. Now, if we're to find ourselves in the second parable, 
and not with the wicked tenants. It must be as far part of the fruitful people who now manage the kingdom of God. Now, it's easy for us to interpret this parable from our perspective, isn't it? It's easy for us to see that the interpretation is the, the Jewish leaders killed the prophets throughout the history. Those were the servants that were sent time and time again. And what did the people do? They killed them. And then when God sent his son, what did the people do? They had him tossed out of the vineyard, tossed out of Jerusalem, and killed on a hill outside the city. It's easy for us to see that. It's also easy for us to see how the kingdom of God was taken away from those rulers. If you look at the history in 70 AD, it was taken away. Their management of the kingdom of God from the temple was taken away. How did that happen? When the Roman general Titus came and he knocked down the temple and he knocked down Jerusalem, their management of the kingdom of God was done. It was taken away from them. And it's, it's easy for us to see hypocrisy in those leaders. Jesus was pointing that out. It's also easy to see hypocrisy in religious leaders today. Sometimes, you, usually, eventually, it, it comes out in, in one way or another, and we, we see it clearly. But we need to be careful not to be like them, denying with our lives what our mouths profess. Rather, we need to produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. Now, the parable doesn't define fruit. It doesn't define fruit. But, helpfully, we already have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And so if you want to know what fruit looks like, good fruit, then go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, almost at the end, in chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 15, it says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now go back and look at the sermon. What are those good fruits? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Uh, you need to control your anger, and you need to love those who mistreat you. Uh, you need to be sexually pure in your, your looks and in your, your words and in your thoughts. You ought to be faithful in your relationships, you ought to be true to your word, not to retaliate, but to love your enemies, giving to the needy, praying, fasting, laying up treasures not on earth but in heaven, not being anxious but trusting the Lord, not judging others, but doing unto others what he would ha you would have them do unto you. There, the, the, here are fruit. We could sum it up this way. If we look at fruit in the, in the New Testament, we find two categories. One is fruit of making more disciples. Jesus told his disciples in, in John, go and, and bear more fruit. And the other is the fruit of, of good works and good character in our lives. Helpfully, in Colossians, I just discovered this last night. In Colossians chapter 1, these two types of fruit are, are almost back to back. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, 
It talks about the word of the truth, the gospel, in verse 5, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. This is the extension of the gospel. This is bringing in more disciples. This is the fruit of missions and evangelism and discipleship, multiplying ourselves. And then in verse 10 it says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's the fruit of character in good works and there's the fruit of multiplication and bringing others into the kingdom. Now, putting these two parables together, we can avoid two common errors of the Christian life. One is often called legalism, and this is what legalism says. Good people enter the kingdom of God by their goodness. That's, that's what legalism says, and many, many different forms of that. And we can avoid that if we see that, no, the way to get in is the way of the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. That's how you get in. Or the opposite of that is libertinism. And this may be, may be more, more common in our day, libertinism about liberty, an abuse of liberty. And that is, bad people who enter the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus may just continue their sinful lives. It really doesn't matter. And that's probably more characteristic. The first may have been more characteristic of evangelical Christianity a few decades ago. But now, probably more characteristic of evangelical Christianity is the second. The idea that it doesn't really matter how you live just so long as you can say you have faith in Jesus. And these two parables put together can help us to avoid either of those errors. How do we get into the kingdom? We get into the kingdom like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. How do we, how do we live in the kingdom? We live in the kingdom by bearing fruit. So to say it positively, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is as a believing sinner. And the only way to live in the kingdom of God is as a fruitful disciple. So let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Jesus, the Son, who was driven out of his own city and crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem by the very ones who should have hailed him as king. And Lord, it's easy for us at this distance to see their hypocrisy. And Lord, I pray that we would not be like them. That we would enter the kingdom by believing, just like the tax collectors and prostitutes did, and every other person that's come into the kingdom, that we would enter by believing in Jesus, the one crucified for us. And then, Lord, may we not be fruitless, but rather may we all be fruitful disciples bringing more people into the kingdom and also bringing before you and showing to others the fruit of changed lives, the fruit of character, and the fruit of good works, that people might see our good works, as Christ said, and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Amen.